Welcome to the Strangers and Aliens podcast. This is Strangers and Aliens, and this episode is a very special Christmas edition of Strangers and Aliens. It is a mega collection of weak connections. That's right. Today, we're going to be counting down the 25 best sci-fi-ish Christmas movies of all time, a weak connections Christmas extravaganza. Hey there, I'm Ben, Ben Avery. I'm the host of the uh, Strangers and Aliens YouTube channel. I'm one of the hosts of the Strangers and Aliens podcast. This particular episode is going out in both feeds. I am a science fiction fan. I am a science fiction writer. I've I got my book, Ghosts of the Future. And if you have a Christmas gift card from Amazon, you want to you want to spend on something. Yeah, you can you can buy this or my new book that I edited, A Time for Everything. It's a giant book, 500 pages of thoughtful science fiction and fantasy. Um, but I love reading, writing, and watching science fiction. And I also love Christmas time. Now, Christmas is one of the most important holidays of the year, especially on the Christian calendar because of what it signifies. And as we go through this list, I'm very excited because there are a number of times where because of weak connections, we're going to be able to make some touch points to the Christmas story. But I want to lay down some ground rules for what qualifies a movie for a Strangers and Aliens Christmas movie as opposed to a regular Christmas movie. And it really comes down to this. It comes down to the same rules that allow Die Hard to be called a Christmas movie, which I would agree. I would definitely would agree because Die Hard takes place at Christmas time, but doesn't just take place at Christmas time. The season is important to the movie. It's not a Christmas movie in that it's about Christmas, but it's a Christmas movie in that Christmas is vital and important to the story. And that's what I've, I've got here is I've got the 25 top movies where Christmas is important to the story and there's science fiction and fantasy, which is why Die Hard is not on the list. I do have an extra movie I'm throwing in uh, on the list uh, at number two. There'll be a 2.5. Uh, we'll get to it when we get to it and I'll explain why. But there's also an honorable mention that I want to mention. That's Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2 definitely fits into the science fiction fantasy, the speculative fiction kind of thing. But it's not actually about Christmas. It's just Christmas is definitely window dressing. And so I, I do want to give it a honorable mention though, because of that, uh, the movie is about how the world is going to end at new year's. <laughs> and so in the days leading up to that, that's when the ghostbusters are going about doing their ghost busting business. And while they're doing that, there's Christmas trees, there's poinsettias, and there's even a scene where they have Santa caps. And as they're moving through the Christmas season, that means they're inching toward new year's, the real deadline and the real holiday that's being used in this, in this movie. So anyway, I, I count it as an honorable mention, but let's move on to the actual list. And the actual list starts with number 25, and that is Last Action Hero. It is a Christmas movie because uh, there is, well, it features Christmas and it's a Shane Black movie. And we're going to talk about another Shane Black movie later in the list. But one of the reasons why I wanted to include this one on the list is because of what Shane Black says about Christmas and why he uses Christmas in his movies, because he does use his use Christmas in a number of his action movies. This is what he says in an interview with Den of Geek. Christmas is fun. 
It's unifying, and all your characters are involved in this event that stays within the larger story. It roots it, I think. It grounds everything. At Christmas, lonely people are lonelier. Seeing friends and families go by, people take reckoning, they take stock of where their lives are at Christmas. It just provides a backdrop against which different things can play out, but with one unifying global heading. I've always liked it, especially in thrillers for some reason. It's a touch of magic. And I mean, there's a couple other movies I can think of that I would consider, you know, for this list if they were really more, you know, science fiction or fantasy psycho is one where christmas is window dressing again it's literally just stuff going on in the background but it adds to the mood and it adds to the tone the opening of last action hero is a movie within a movie and that movie within a movie is an action movie taking place at christmas time so uh, there's over-the-top dialogue and there's action and it plays out against that background of christmas lights and trees as um, Schwarzenegger's character is doing all the Schwarzenegger stuff that he does. The rest of the movie is about a kid who magically transports himself into a Jack Slater movie. That's the Arnold Arnold character and his misadventures there. So uh, I put it at number 25, though, because first of all, when I did finally see this as an adult, I wasn't super impressed with it. But it is definitely a Strangers and Aliens uh, Christmas movie. And that brings us now to number 24, which is... Jurassic World. Jurassic World barely meets the criteria of this list because it takes place just before Christmas and the opening of the movie has Christmas carols and snow and it feels like a Christmas movie right down to all the strained family dynamics that are going on. Two boys are going to go spend time with their aunt who runs Jurassic World and it's assumed that they're going there for the holidays because that's the time period that's happening in the scene where they're talking about what they're going to be doing. But as soon as they arrive on the island, really all the Christmas stuff is just gone. It's just forgotten. They're at Costa Rica, so there's no snow or anything like that. But the the movie ends then with a family reunion, and it feels like the perfect end of a Christmas movie, even though it doesn't feel like a Christmas movie at all. Um, it also ends with a family reunion, although the parents are probably still going to get their divorce, which is set up in the very beginning of the movie. So, um, yeah. So is it a Christmas movie in that sense? I mean, it it sets up some family things. It definitely has that that vibe at the beginning. But this is why it's so far down on the list is because it is very, very, um, very tangential to the plot. So uh, I honestly don't know why they set the beginning at Christmas other than to just set that visual reference to the season, which will allow you to have family feelings and thoughts about your own family dynamics as you're as you're in there. So, so moving on to number 23 soldier starring Kurt Russell soldier is the story of a soldier who is trained since birth to be a soldier and is then found to be obsolete when newer, better soldiers are manufactured. And then he takes residence on a peaceful colony as he's thrown out literally into the garbage and he must come to terms with his nature and with his past. And it is a Christmas movie because there's one major turning point in the movie that comes about because of a Christmas party. And he's he finds himself with peace-loving people who take him in on this garbage planet. And, and uh, Todd finds himself disconnected from them, but they have this Christmas party. And uh, there's a post-traumatic episode that he has in the midst of the noise and the celebration. And that kicks off a series of events that cause the people of the colony to push him away. He's forced then out of the colony and he walks away from them with the decorative lights symbolizing the unity of the group uh, still lit in the background as he walks solo through the gates. 
Then bad guys come and they cause trouble for the colony and Todd does what he does best and kills people and they all live happily ever after except for the people that he killed. (laughs) So this is a pretty decent movie and it's a nice action movie. There's some symbolism that gets pretty heavy handed, but the symbolism is also kind of religious in nature. And so I can't feel like it's a an accident that they're using Christmas and they're also using these other religious symbols. There's a snake that literally enters a literal garden where the love interest for Todd is planting saplings and teaching Todd to grow life, not take it. And then the snake becomes this kind of lesson about defending oneself. And yeah, uh, so that's, there's, there's that stuff, but I mean, you have sin entering in and you have, you know, Todd who kind of brings also sin into the, into their world. But anyway, it's an action movie that has some nice emotional beats. It's pretty decent. It also ties into Blade Runner. And then via Blade Runner ties into Alien because of uh, one of the writers who was involved with this. He was involved in those in Blade Runner, at least. And he left some Easter eggs there. So that is number 23, which brings us to number 22, Gremlins, a movie that really goes on a lot of people's lists like this. So (laughs) it's probably no surprise to see it here. Christmas is a super important element for this movie. This movie is a horror comedy about little creatures that become murderous monsters. I would call it alien meets the Muppets maybe, but it all happens because of a Christmas present. Gizmo is the perfect Christmas gift that Billy's father is looking for with Billy. And of course I say perfect, but Gizmo then spawns a bunch of evil reptile creatures that terrorize the town and kill and maim and destroy, but he's cute. And besides Billy is the one who broke the rules, not Gizmo. Gizmo can't help it. Gizmo is just an animal. All right. Gizmo can't help it at all. He doesn't have free will beyond his own, uh, instinct, except that he does go outside of free will to do some good stuff at the end and some independent thinking and decision-making to help save the day. But Billy's the one who broke the rules and now Christmas is ruined. And I think this is one of those horror movies that inadvertently, I think makes a stronger statement about morality than was intended because you have Billy who's given very, very clear rules to follow. He has an original sin moment and the results of that, the, the consequences of that snowball out of control sin and its consequences are probably not what the filmmakers had in mind. But when you're talking about Christmas, the whole reason we have Christmas at all is because of sin and its consequences. Now, they were more interested in making a movie that is uh, to make you laugh at old ladies and (laughs) to uh, laugh at small animals being tortured and murdered in ridiculous ways. And it succeeds. It's a black comedy and the humor comes from the evil antics of the gremlins. So on one hand, you're rooting for the good guys uh, to right the wrong. And the other hand, you're laughing with the bad guys as they spread their mayhem. But anyway, that is number 22. Number 21 of this list is Hook. Hook is a movie I really want to revisit. I want to see this again. I haven't seen it in a very, very long time. And I want to revisit it because I want to see, does it hold up? Because I remember the last time I watched it, maybe seven to 10 years ago, it, it did not hold up. This is Steven Spielberg's sequel to Peter Pan in which Peter is all grown up. He is now an adult Robin Williams and he doesn't remember his adventures in Neverland. And he finds his children have been kidnapped by Captain Hook, who does remember everything because Captain Hook has been living in Neverland and it's a Christmas movie because Peter and his family are in London for a Christmas vacation. Of course, it's not much of a vacation because he's a workaholic. And so, uh, 
you know, as as happens in a Hollywood movie, his children are taken away and he's going to learn a lesson about family from this. And when they return at Christmas time, he gives his family a great gift, which he, he throws his cell phone into the snow outside, which I remember when I saw that for the first time back in the day when cell phones were a big deal, I thought to myself, I can't believe he's doing that. He's threw that really expensive device into the snow out a second story window. I have problems with this movie. Like I said, I want to revisit it, see if I still have those problems with this movie. But I remember enjoying it. I just don't remember it holding up. And so I, I'm going to check it out again. But anyway, that is number 21. Movie number 20 maybe shouldn't be on this list because it's based on a true story. And that is the Mothman Prophecies. And I know I said this is science fiction and fantasy. That's the kind of list I'm making here. But uh, once the movie is all said and done, this is a science fiction or fantasy movie. This is not based on a true story. It's based on elements of a true story. But they take even the fantastic elements of what is reported to be the true story. And then they ramp it way up. But it's a Christmas movie because it's set at Christmas, or at least the big moment is set at Christmas. And the prophecies about what's going to happen, the prophecies from the title, point to the climax, which is at Christmas time. But each, as you're moving along, even from the beginning of the movie, and this is what I remember the most about this movie, is there are these Christmas presents floating in water. And so you have the imagery of the Christmas gifts floating in water that's just building up to this point where we're almost in the Christmas season and you have a family that's going to go and do something at Christmas time. And the Mothman prophecies are all pointing to this horrible, horrible event that's going to happen in this town. For years and years and years, I thought I remembered Kevin Costner in this movie, but when I went back and rewatched it, <laughs> it's Richard Gere. I, I don't know what happened. I don't know if this is a Mandela effect or what, but I did not remember Richard Gere being the guy in the lead. I did remember the dream stuff that was prophesying the disaster at the climax. That imagery of floating gifts was really weird. And of course, it sets your, your ticking time bomb. You know where this movie is going and you know when the timeline is. It's, it's that Christmas time. And when everything happens at the end, it all comes together. And the imagery from all of that, it, it was just haunting. And it stuck with me and, and sticks with me until this, this very day. Although apparently Richard Gere did not stick with me until this very day. The one problem I have with this movie is it needs more Mothman. I don't know why you don't have more Mothman creature in a movie that they're going ahead and tossing out a lot of the true story stuff. I mean, if they're going to ramp it up, why not ramp it up with some more Mothman? But for some reason, they chose not to have Mothman in it too much. So that is number 20. Movie number 19 is The Black Hole. Disney's The Black Hole. Now, why is this movie on this list? I'll tell you why this movie is on this list, because I want it to be on this list and I cheated a little bit to get it on this list. In the novelization by Alan Dean Foster, the uh, he mentions that all of the stuff that's happening when they find uh, the ship that's hanging out on the edge of the black hole, it's December 24th. And there's some mentions made to... Uh, <laughs> Mentions made to the ship being lit up by like a Christmas tree in the movie. That's in the movie. But, you know, just mentioning Christmas is not enough to become a Christmas movie. But I just wanted it on this list. The date isn't mentioned in the movie, but it is mentioned in the book. The book was, I'm assuming, uh, you know, based on the script, right? So, you know, they, they mentioned that the ship lights up like a Christmas tree. And then at the end, there's all sorts of references to Inferno and to... Dante and and hell and, and all these things. And 
I'm just going to say it. My list, my rules, right? I mean, I, I can do what I want, can't I? <laughs> so anyway, it's not a great movie. It's not a perfect movie, but it is a good movie. I really like The Black Hole. There's some problems, especially when you get to the end, that come because, you know, the people said, well, I don't want to put on a spacesuit when we do this scene. So I'm not putting on a spacesuit. When it makes sense for them to have a spacesuit on, how can they be running when there's no air? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But anyway, with all the talk of Dante's Inferno, when they look at the black hole and all the creepiness and all the mystery and the missing crew and everything, that ending, the idea that it takes place on Christmas adds a new dimension to it. The darkness of the black hole and that symbolic hell and the real hell everyone feels that they're placed in and actually go through are all images of why Christmas happened in the first place. The Christ came to save us from ourselves, from our self-made hells and from the actual hell. And so, Alan, Dean Foster, thank you so much for letting me put this on my list. <laughs> so, for number 18, we're going to get into some B-movie area with Snowmageddon. I just want to say I hate the title. I hate the title because of what Snowmageddon has become. I'm pretty sure that the title and the movie only exist because of newscasters who decided to start using the word Snowmageddon in weather reports. This is a low-budget, made-for-sci-fi-channel movie. It's a disaster movie about a killer storm that wreaks havoc on a small Alaskan town and the surrounding wilderness. It's not, it's not actually the storm that causes the havoc. It's actually a magical snow globe, but Snowmageddon comes because of the, the storm. There's other things that happen as far as, like, there's earthquakes and there's lava and there's all sorts of stuff. Helicopters are shot out of the, the sky. Snowboarders are stranded and wounded by the storm. Power lines trap people. Kids run away. People get split up. It's everything you'd expect from a direct-to-sci-fi movie based on a ripped-from-the-headlines portmanteau. But it's not just that it happens on Christmas. It's actually because uh, everything is set in motion because the family gets a Christmas gift placed on their front porch by a mysterious person. And the Christmas gift is a snow globe. It's a steampunk snow globe with magical powers. And also, by the way, the, the mom is a, a helicopter Santa and she brings presents to people the next town over. But that gives the, the movie an excuse to send people out into the mountains for when the storm comes. But anyway, this is about family. And this is a movie about a family trying to come together and rescue each other from horrible, awful, no good, very bad special effects of a storm that shoots ice bullets. So I like bad movies. I really do. I'm just not a fan of the Sharknado brand of bad where they're trying to be bad. Fortunately, this is not a movie that is trying to be bad. I feel like this is a movie that sci-fi is capitalizing on how bad it is, but they're actually trying to make a movie that is a that takes itself seriously. The actors, I feel like, weren't told what kind of movie they were in, and that actually helps it a little bit. But it's still just a movie about a snow globe that causes earthquakes, storms, and avalanches. An earnest movie about a snow globe that causes earthquakes, storms, and avalanches, but still a movie about a magic snow globe that causes earthquakes, storms, and avalanches nonetheless. And then it turns into Lord of the Rings at the end. I'm I, I'm not joking. It does. It, it kind of goes Lord of the Rings route at the end. This movie really wanted to be Lord of the Rings. I don't understand why they did it, but I enjoyed the movie. Enjoyed it enough that I didn't feel bad for spending, you know, 90 minutes of my time watching this thing. But it's number 18 on my list. But staying in that B movie category, number 17 is The Day Mars Invaded Earth. 
This movie is a 1960s science fiction epic with a title alone that makes it worth the price of admission. It evokes War of the Worlds. It evokes Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It invokes The Day the Earth Stood Still. It invokes Invaders from Mars. And it tells a story of a quiet invasion of Martians. And the movie opens on Mars with an unmanned probe that looks a lot like something we would send up today. And that sends a signal to Earth that affects a scientist in Florida who returns home to his family in California in time for Christmas. But it's just, it's not a joyous family occasion. He's out of touch with his family. Things are tense and awkward. And when he opens his presence early because he'll have to return to Florida, there's this strange situation where people start acting weird and showing up in two places at once. And there's there's some original things about this movie. One is the family dynamic in the 60s, kind of exploring the separation of spouses and adding a metaphorical element to that idea where the people don't know each other after they've grown apart from each other. And, you know, that, that figures into the whole science fiction-y kind of a th- invasion kind of a thing. Invasion of Body Snatchers uh, definitely was was an influence there. Uh, but then it's also a good movie in some ways because of just the way it steals from so many other sci-fi movies of the period. So, which brings us to another B movie. Number 16 on the list is night of the comet night of the comet is a B movie about a comet that passes earth and leaves behind red dust that kills almost everyone and turns many of the remaining people who aren't dead into killer zombie types and results in a desperate fight for life on a lonely, empty world, and it is a Christmas movie because, well, the opening narration sets it up. Since before recorded time, it had swung through the universe in an elliptical orbit so large that its very existence remained a secret of time and space. But now, in the last few years of the 20th century, the Visitor was returning. The citizens of Earth would get an extra Christmas present this year as their planet orbited through the tail of the comet. And indeed, before the Christmas festivities start, people are reveling in the coming of the comet instead, although they have put up the Christmas decorations and are clearly getting ready for the holidays. And so you have the holiday celebrating the birth of Christ and the extinction level event that took out the dinosaurs, both mentioned at the beginning, showing that this movie is trying to be about something. Maybe it's not trying to be about something. Maybe it's pretending to be about something, or maybe it's a little bit of both. But anyway, everyone in front of and behind the camera knows exactly what this movie is trying to be. They spend the entire movie with their tongue firmly in their cheek. The horrors of survival alone in a dead world with the zombie type people thirsty for your blood are explored with explosions of violence and ends on a melancholy but hopeful note. It's not the greatest movie ever, but it's possibly the greatest teenagers on a dead earth movie on this list. (laughs) It doesn't rise above the genre, but it's not as poor as some B movies can be, especially in the 80s and It makes the list as a strange Christmas movie. It is number 16. Number 15 is much like this one. It is I Am Legend with Will Smith. I Am Legend is an adaptation of Richard Madison's vampire novel of the same name. And it's been made into a movie two times before. It was made into a movie called Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price and The Omega Man with Charlton Heston. But this one actually takes the, the title I Am Legend. And it's about... Will Smith, who is the last man on earth. Maybe. 
So the reason this is a Christmas movie is because two years before this movie opens, before the events of this movie opens, uh, there is this zombie plague kind of a thing. And that zombie plague kind of thing happened in December and the plague killed 90% of the world's population, turned the rest into zombie vampire things that come out at night to try to eat Will Smith. And during the day, Will Smith walks the streets looking for food and other things that he needs to survive. Everywhere around him are streets and store decorations for the Christmas season, though, which was rudely interrupted by this deadly, deadly plague. Christmas season being the time of year that the plague happened it's kind of salt in the wound for will smith and for us as we're watching and empathizing with him because there's just constant reminders of family holiday all around him this is a movie where you have the ghost of christmas past that is haunting the main character here and it's a constant reminder that humanity has been stripped away from the globe leaving behind just this thin shadow of both a spiritual and material nature Bringing us to number 14, which is Things to Come, written by H.G. Wells. He wrote the screenplay for this movie, rewriting his own novel, adapting his own novel, Shape of Things to Come, into that screenplay, telling the future history of the world from 1940 until 2036. And here is why it is a Christmas movie. It is a Christmas movie because the first scene screams, almost literally screams Christmas at you. Christmas carols are playing. Born is the king of Israel is accompanied by chiming bells. War is brewing is the headlines on the newspapers that the people are selling, though, as this music is playing. God rest ye merry gentlemen. And as that is being sung by carolers, we see toy soldiers are being sought after as Christmas gifts while wars and rumor of wars upset everyone everywhere. And so you have these, these questions of the horrors of war and the progress that comes from war brought up as the world teeters on the brink of another world war, peace on earth, goodwill toward men and a happy new year. Those give way to the brutal wars that happen in this movie. And a world war does come. It's devastating. It plunges the world into a new dark age. And there are some glimmers of hope, but the movie is really not a very optimistic one. And I would say this is one of those sci-fi homework movies you should watch if you are interested in science fiction movies. It is a homework movie because it is not very exciting. It is interesting and there is pedigree behind this. You have H.G. Wells writing his own screenplay and that makes it something special. But uh, as, as <laughs> Wells was a forward thinking sci-fi writer, but I wouldn't say he was a an exciting sci-fi movie screenwriter. So there are some good special effects for the time, which is another reason for it to be homework. But the acting, characterization, uh, they're, they're okay. They're not great. And the movie is more concerned with the ideas and the passage of time than it is concerned with the characters who just, I feel like they don't have much dimension to them. So anyway, that is number 14. And that brings us to number 13, which is an unusual movie for this list. And that is Gundam Wing Endless Waltz. So the Gundam franchise is a huge franchise with multiple series, multiple movies and alternate timelines, books, comics, models, you name it, they've got it. And it's big. It's giant. Endless Waltz is a series of three original video animations, OVAs. It was also compiled into a single uh, theatrical presentation. And this series focuses on giant humanoid mechanical suits that are called Gundam that are used to fight the world's battles. This story opens on Christmas Eve with this artfully rendered quiet presentation of a final battle in a war 
which was, I guess, detailed in a previous TV series. One year later, on the anniversary of the war's end, Earth is united with the colonies they had warred against before. As most of humanity is celebrating Christmas and remembers the war, two other things are going on. First, the Gundam suits are being launched into the sun because the war is over. And second, one of the colonies is rising up to take over the United Earth colonies. And it seems there can be no peace on Earth. My uh, connection with the Gundam franchise is very spotty. I've seen some episodes. I've seen some of the movies. I read the Mobile Suit Gundam trilogy of novels from the 80s. And to be honest, I probably wouldn't have watched this at all if it weren't for it showing up when I was researching stuff about (laughs) strange Christmas stuff. So anyway, um, this does everything well. It takes the themes and ideas of Christmas and it juxtaposes it against the war. And it makes, it's a story that makes sense without having to know a lot of the background of the Gundam wing franchise. Um, and I feel like it, it grappled with peace and war and those themes and ideas. Well, and the story is built on a revolutionary seven, a seven-year-old girl who's a revolutionary who rises up to make war as soon as the weapons for anyone who could stop her, are being destroyed. And so most of the story is like every action movie. It's, it's there just to bring super warriors into conflict, but, and, and the battle scenes are really cool, but the theme of peace above all else is well done. So that is our number 13 movie. Our number 12 movie. We are moving into the star Trek realm with star Trek generations. All right. This is another weak connection as far as it being a Christmas movie, but hang with me, hang with me. This is the first Star Trek movie with no number in the title. It was the bridge movie between the original crew having their movie series and the next generation crew having their movie series. And they were passing the torch from one generation to the next in the middle of the movie. Captain Picard goes into a strange space rift called the Nexus in which all your dreams can come true. And of course, Captain Picard's dream is of the family he never had, which is a big theme in the movie about family, losing family. And in this movie, he loses his home. He loses his uh, some important parts of his family. And uh, yeah, so in the idealized form of a Dickensian Christmas, complete with children and presents and food and a tree and everything, that is where Captain Picard kind of idealizes family and what he needs with with family. So I don't understand why Picard's idealized family is British in theme and uh, when he's French, but eh. You know, it's definitely a Patrick Stewart thing. Patrick Stewart went on to do an amazing recitation of A Christmas Carol and then also did a pretty decent TV movie of A Christmas Carol. So about this movie, there's a lot of problems with it. Um, Captain Kirk's death in this movie is a problem, but um, there's some good elements to it. When Kirk and Picard meet in the Nexus, we see both of their ideas of idealized living. It's charming and it's warm and it's insightful. Next Generation cast on the screen is fun. They still feel like family together as a crew. Um, We get to see the Enterprise B, which is kind of cool because we never got to see that. 
theoretically, this is supposed to be a lot of fun for Trekkies, but it's Kirk's death. It's Kirk's death that kind of ruins it for people. Anyway, using Christmas and a time for family, using the visuals of that classic Christmas, underlying the loss of family, the Picard experience, but also underlines the family life that Picard never had because he never married, never had children. And this scene is warm and meaningful and unfortunately overshadowed by Kirk's own death and overshadowed by Kirk's own fantasy of living on a horse farm. But anyway... It, um, because of the meanings that we give to Christmas and the holiday season, so much can be said about what he feels he may have missed out on in just a few small visuals. And yeah. so it definitely, you know, kind of feels like pulling into Christmas Carol, which you'll notice there's no Christmas Carol on this list. Christmas Carol deserves its own list. It is a fantastic science fiction-y Christmas fantasy kind of a thing. Fits in that speculative fiction realm, but... It would overwhelm this list if I put it on here. Muppets Christmas Carol, of course, would be the number one. Bringing us to number 11, Peter Jackson's King Kong from 2005. So this is another movie that uses the preconceived emotions and feelings and thoughts we have about Christmas and have about that season as a background subtext without putting it in the foreground. It, it is back there. You can see it. It is definitely the season where things are happening and taking place, but it is a subtextual juxtaposition that we're getting and not a um, full on. This is spoken context that we're getting. King Kong from 2005 is a remake that no one was asking for until it was announced. And then everyone was anticipating it after Peter Jackson did Lord of the Rings. This was his follow-up was three hours long. <laughs> I mean, it just doubled the length of the original and it just wasn't exactly what people were hoping for maybe, but it was, I think exactly what people were expecting was going to come out of Peter Jackson. So it's a Christmas movie because of the third act. The third act of the movie takes place at Christmas time. And you can see there's ornaments, there's the dusting of the snow. And this is the portion of the movie that features the display of Kong as the eighth wonder of the world it shows uh, his escape, his rampage, his time with the beauty that tamed the beast. And then of course, later on his his death in the midst of all this between rampage and death, there is this, beautiful quiet moment of andaro and king kong ice skating in the park and it's it's tender and it's cute and it's fun and it's interrupted by shelling from the army and of course it ends eventually with the death of the monster as he goes and climbs the empire state building all that but the mood of the season is used to add to the melancholy of, of what's going on there and uh yeah so whatever you might think about this as a movie uh you I would say if you're you're looking for this list for movies to watch at Christmas time, um, you may not want to invest in the three hour time length of the movie, but it is definitely a strange Christmas movie. It is a weak connection to the Christmas season for sure. Bringing us to our top 10 and number 10 is Tales from the Crypt. No, not that Tales from the Crypt. No, this is a horror anthology movie from 1972 about five people who are on a tour of a crypt and find themselves locked in a room with a strange man who proceeds to tell them their stories, which reveals to them how they died and also how awful they are as human beings. And the reason it's a Christmas movie is because Joan Crawford's story takes place entirely on Christmas Eve and begins with her Christmas present to her husband which is a sharp blow to the head. 
and goes through to a Christmas present from her husband, which is his insurance policy. And then it goes to a visit from Santa Claus in the form of a homicidal maniac who stole a Santa suit. (laughs) So uh, this list does not have many horror movies on it. I mean, Gremlins is on here, but I thought, you know, this horror anthology definitely belongs on here. The stories from this movie were based on old EC comics. So it is related to Tales from the Crypt in that way, the the TV show and and things that you might be familiar with. But it's because of the comic series from before that, the pre-code comic series. And that should tell you right there, are you going to like this movie? or not. Personally, for me, EC Comics are hit or miss. They're more miss than hit, but it is worth it because they're short, (laughs) and it's worth it because when an EC Comics story hits, it is good, and it hits well. It's short, it's powerful, it's impactful, and packs a punch with a nice little twist at the end, usually. This movie is a horror movie because of the tone that is being set. There's not a lot of blood, not a lot of guts, but it is cerebral and it is grim and it is for tension that it becomes a horror movie, not shock. Although there is some shock in, in, in the movie, but the tension and the, and the shock are both memorable in this movie, each of the tales and each of the people in the crypt, they get classic horror movie justice. They, they, each of these stories features a person who's just plain awful, who gets an ironic comeuppance. And so, I mean, I'm not going to get into all five of the stories, but there, there's a lot of horror tropes going on in here. But the one that's important for this list is the Christmas segment. And the Christmas segment is full of dark humor. Joan Crawford goes between hiding her husband's dead body from her daughter, who is upstairs And she gets her daughter to stay in bed by telling her uh, Santa can't come unless she stays in bed. So and and then she has to figure out what to do with her husband's corpse. And then she finds herself hiding from the homicidal maniac who's dressed as Santa, who's trying to get inside. And all of this is set to Christmas carols, sentimental and traditional and jaunty Christmas carols. And that makes a lot of the black comedy uh, pretty dramatic as well. So. That is number 10. Number nine, we are moving into superhero territory with another Shane Black movie, and that is Iron Man 3. People who know me will not be surprised to see Iron Man 3 on this list. In fact, some people might be surprised I didn't put it higher on this list. This is the third movie in the Iron Man series. It's the seventh movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe series, and it takes place at Christmas time. Why? Because Shane Black, The movie actually starts 12 years earlier, which means the movie starts on New Year's Eve and then it moves to 12 years ahead now and it is Christmas time for the main story. And I like this movie more than most people. I like the vibe. I like the twists. I like the character moments or most of them. But it feels like an 80s movie, an 80s action movie. And that's another reason why I really like this movie. And it feels like an 80s action movie partially because of that Christmas setting. Now, In some ways, you could argue that that needed to be set at Christmas because Tony Stark continues to learn, to be more giving. Um, One character beat for him in this movie is that he gets Pepper a Christmas gift. And if you remember in the first movie, he got her a present she really wanted because she went ahead and got it for herself. He's like, oh, happy birthday or whatever. I can't remember if it's birthday, but I think it was birthday. Uh, What did I get for you? And she's like, oh, it was great. I loved it. Here, he tries to buy her a gift. It doesn't go over well because it's a dumb gift, but he he's he's changing. He's growing. 
But all of this, it's done in that 80s kind of style storytelling. It all comes to a head when Tony sneaks into the bad guy's mansion with homemade weaponry. And it's just, there's so much 80s vibe to this movie, even though it's not set in the 80s. It feels so 80s. And uh, in the midst of this, he uses a Christmas ornament for a distraction. And anyway, Christmas, Iron Man 3, Christmas movie. And we're going to do another superhero movie with number eight. Batman Returns. Tim Burton loves Christmas. I mean, right off the top of my head, I can think of three movies that feature Christmas that Tim Burton was heavily involved in if he didn't direct it himself. Batman Returns, the next movie on this list, Nightmare Before Christmas, which is not on this list. I don't know why it's not on this list. It probably should be. Honorable mention for Nightmare Before Christmas. Although, is it a Halloween movie or is it a Christmas movie that is debate that happens in our house, which means we end up not watching it in October or in December because we debate about when we're supposed to watch it and we never get around to watching it. That's a me problem, though. That's not a list problem. Let's talk about Batman Returns, though. Why is Batman Returns a Christmas movie? Because like Iron Man 3, it takes place at Christmas time. But unlike Iron Man 3, the Christmas setting is used to dramatic and obvious effect, important effect. There are Christmas trees. There are presents all juxtaposed against the gothic Gotham setting. And I've always loved and appreciated the audaciousness of Batman Returns. This is one This is probably the most Tim Burton of all the Tim Burton movies. It is a more Tim Burton movie, definitely, than the first Batman. And as a result, it's less of a Batman movie, I think, than the first Batman movie. It's garish. It's ghoulish. It's profane. Danny DeVito's Penguin is a sight to behold. And his performance is just as disgusting as his makeup. Michelle Pfeiffer is perfect as the dual-natured Catwoman. And then there's the religious subtext that happens in this movie, which I feel like I should do a whole episode of Strangers and Aliens, maybe, about Batman Returns. We may have done that. I can't remember. But anyway, there's religious subtext. This movie has more weird religious symbolism than maybe any movie on the list here. There's the Moses-like journey of Penguin when his parents push his baby stroller into the river and then there's the idea of the firstborn sons of gotham being murdered and then there's penguin leaving gotham and coming back 30 years later and then there's the way that penguin's body has penguin pallbearers carrying him to a weird burial at sea where he sinks downward with his arms outstretched and it's this weird mixture of old testament and new testament symbols wrapped up in this perversion of a story and the Christmas setting just becomes one more element of that. And then there is the election subplot going on as well, which has to go through some convenient plot gymnastics in order to have the election during the holiday season. It's bizarre. It's audacious. It's crazy. It's Tim Burton. It's Batman. It's Christmas. Number seven on the list, another Tim Burton movie, Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands is a movie I love partially because of the director's love in it, which is, this is his, this is Tim Burton's love letter to classic monster movies, which also happens to be a teen metaphor and it features Johnny Depp and it blends Gothic romance and suburban lifestyle. And the opening of the movie from the 20th century Fox logo takes place in a snowy winter and Winona Ryder is in old age makeup. And she starts to tell the story of why it snows. And her story follows the traditional cinematic three-act structure. And the entire third act is at Christmas time. 
And so this is a lovely movie when you compare Tim Burton's other Christmas movie, Batman Returns, to this movie. This one is lovely. And I like this movie a lot. And uh, just from the tone and, and just to that, again, that love letter to Universal Monsters, especially Creature from the Black Lagoon and Frankenstein. And and then it just taking this movie as it's offered, it's dark, it's melancholy, it's sweet, it's well-crafted, it's not perfect, but you've got Depp doing his character acting, you've got Burton's film sensibilities. It, it feels like it could be perfect almost, but it, it's not, it's not, but it, it's close enough that it feels like it is. And this is the story of Edward who was created by a scientist. And so there's some more Frankenstein overtones. And for some reason, the scientist had to give him scissors for hands. And he's found by this kind Avon lady. And it sets up this kind of inverse fairy tale. The Avon lady steps into what seems like a fairy tale castle. But instead of her entering into the fairy tale, she brings Edward, the fairy tale, fairy tale creature, out of the fairy tale. And this is another movie where the Christmas season just really helps set the mood and the Christmas is a time for family, but Edward has none. In fact, his only family died while giving him an early Christmas present. And it's a disturbing scene, and it's made more disturbing because it's Christmas time. And in the movie, Edward, as he finds himself transplanted from his gothic gray life into the pastel sub suburbs, uh, he has teen angst, and it grows, and misunderstandings abound, and love is found. And that is what happens when you are a teenager teen angst grows, misunderstandings abound, and love is found. But not all is tragic. Unlike Frankenstein, where the monster is chased and killed, until the sequel when he comes back, or the creature from the Black Lagoon where he sinks to his death after being persecuted by the people who invade his space, until the sequel when he comes back. We get a bittersweet ending for our Edward Scissorhands and for the town folk. And Edward Scissorhands gives back to the people who did nothing but take from him. And can you think of a more Christmas theme than that? I don't think so. We've got a great weak connection right there where you have giving back to people who do nothing but take from you. Number six on our list is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I don't know why it's not number one on the list, but number six on the list is Brazil by Terry Gilliam. Brazil is another dark and imaginative and surreal movie. It's about a bizarre dystopian fantasy that was actually going to be called 1984 and a half. Um, it's the story of a man who lives in this world of bureaucracy and, and paperwork, but he escapes into a fantasy world where he can fly and the girl of his dreams must be rescued and the lines between reality and fantasy get blurred multiple times. And in the end, you just need to see it. And it's a Christmas movie because Christmas presents and decorations and Santa abound. This movie is set at Christmas in this dystopian world, which helps draw out its themes like themes of family and themes of relationships and the evils of commercialization. I don't want to say too much about the movie. It's one of my favorite movies by one of my favorite directors, if not my favorite director. And it's a Christmas movie. In one early scene, we see a little girl who is worried that Santa can't visit because they don't have a chimney. And immediately after that, you have an alternate and uh, method of entering the house is used by someone, but they ain't Santa. Later, the main character is visited by Santa or someone in a Santa suit. And you just need to see it in order to understand. But Apropos of the season, there's a lot of gift giving. Um, 
But it's just this world is a terrible bureaucratic dystopia where paperwork reigns supreme. And Sam, our protagonist, finds himself lost in a maze of dreariness and hopelessness. And he longs for something more in life, longs for meaningful human relationships. He longs for love. And the world around him is concerned only with appearances. And the human relationships that, that are around him and that he's involved in are just purely surface level, uh, even for family. So by day, he's a cog in the machine. He's an office worker drone. By night, he dreams that he is a hero seeking the woman he loves. And day and night collide when the woman from his dreams steps into his life. And you just need to see it. Now, it is an R-rated movie. There are three different versions of it out there. Um, so I would just be aware of that. Uh, but you're looking for the, the director's cut is the one that you want. And the the Christmas setting just makes perfect sense in, the sense, in, in this movie. The next movie on the list, number five, is another Terry Gilliam movie, and that is 12 Monkeys. And I think I placed it at number five above Brazil because Christmas, well, there's one line, actually, a very specific line that causes me to place it as high as it is um, above Brazil. Although, again, it's by Terry Gilliam, my favorite director, or one of my favorite directors. This is a remake of an artsy French film called La Jete. And this is his time. Uh, Terry Gilliam uh, made a time travel story here. It stars Bruce Willis as a time traveler from the future, being sent back in time to find the origins of a plague that eradicated most of the human population. And it also stars Brad Pitt as a lunatic who just might have been the one to release the plague. And it's a brilliant movie. It plays with perspective and time frames and truth and sanity. It's a Christmas movie because on December 12th, 1996, an epidemic decimates the world's population. And against the backdrop of Santa Clauses and Christmas shoppers and Christmas decorations, Bruce Willis and Madeline Stowe must try to stop the plague from being released. Madeline Stowe leaves a message and she thinks it's for the future, but then she realizes it's probably just an insane delusion from Bruce Willis that she's kind of buying into. And she gives this sarcastic at the end of the message, have a Merry Christmas. That's the reason that it's that line that just when I think of 12 monkeys, that line pops into my head and just the way she says it. And that's what makes it a, a Christmas movie more so, you know, puts it higher on the list than, than Brazil. This is probably the roughest of all these Christmas movies. It earned its R rating with violence and with language. But I love this movie almost as much as I love Brazil. It's time travel, which you know I love time travel. I mean, that's that's why we made this book. It's the time travel elements. But it's 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 time travel. It's Terry Gilliam. It's dark. It's nihilistic. But at the same time, it's hopeful. And heartfelt. And Bruce Willis plays the main character who, even if everything he believes in is true, he's still on the edge of being unhinged. Brad Pitt brings this manic energy that just, it's a wonderful performance. And uh, it's funny, it's magnetic, and it's crazy. Madeline Stowe plays the person from our time who gets sucked into Bruce Willis's delusion, obsession. Um, but anyway, he, she gets sucked into the, all this with the plague and we bounce back and forth through time. And then, of course, the movie features Gilliam's dynamic visuals, powerful performances, and then this time travel story that wraps itself around in a way that's at first confusing and then completely logical. And uh, actually, Ghost of the Future owes a little bit to that, too. I, I just love circular storytelling that you get from time travel and how you can start and end at the beginning. And so in the end, there's questions of if time can be changed and if it was all delusion or not, or is, is it a single timeline that people are traveling up and down or is it multiple timelines? Um, but 
I'm not going to tell you my theory. I'm just going to say, watch, watch the movie. I haven't watched the TV show. I don't know if the TV show follows that whole Christmas time frame or anything like that, but that is number five on our list. So that brings us to number four on our list, which is the princess bride. <laughs> The Princess Bride is this classic fantasy movie. It's it's the story of the world's greatest love story. Little Fred Savage is sick, so Columbo comes to tell him the story of the Dread Pirate Roberts. And it is a Christmas movie. And I never noticed this, even though we watch this every year at New Year's Eve, we watch this movie up to midnight. And at midnight, the end credits roll. We change the channel to the ball dropping every year. And I've been watching it every year, every year, every year. And then finally, a couple years ago, I realized this is a Christmas movie because when Fred Savage's grandfather comes, when Columbo comes to bring him the book with the story that he reads, it comes from a book that was a gift to the boy. It's a gift that's wrapped in paper. That's not a birthday gift. It looks like a Christmas present and on the wall is a homemade Santa Claus. And there are other Christmas looking decorations. This poor kid is sick over Christmas break. So more importantly, the story itself, the princess bride, the fantasy story itself is a Christmas present. I can't believe I never realized this, or maybe I did realize it and never noticed. I don't know if you can realize something and not notice it, but anyway, this movie is a new year's Eve tradition for my family. We watch other fantasy movies, sci-fi movie up until this movie, this, and I calculate the time so that this movie will end right at midnight. And it's, I, I feel like I'm doing it on the wrong holiday, but we started the tradition. We're sticking with the tradition. So anyway, thinking about the Christmas gift that Fred Savage gets, what a great Christmas gift. It, he's living this life of boredom and video games, sick in his room and his grandfather, oh, and by the way, that video game. I mean, we played that stuff when I was a kid, but even on the screen, it's just so lackluster and, and there's not a lot of action. And the music is it's baseball. And, it's dun, 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 dun. and so even the video game feels slow and just, you feel bad for the kid, but his grandfather brings him the greatest gift, the gift of story. And he warms up to his grandfather's presence soon enough. And the boy grows into hearing the story a little bit and that he accepts romance as an okay part of a story. <laughs> Not quite coming of age, you know, but it's, it's a baby step. So yeah, it's, it's clever. It's fun. This is a story about what we love about stories. I've heard people say this is uh, you know, perfect uh, parody or satire of, of high fantasy, but no, I feel like you can definitely call it that and see those elements. But the reason those elements are there is because this is a story about story. It's a story about the gift of story. And it's a story that encourages heroic acts in the name of good and selfless acts in the name of love and humorous acts in the name of adversity. And it is all a Christmas gift to a young boy. So that brings us to number three on our list. And number three is Prometheus. I don't know if Prometheus deserves to be at number three on this list. I really like this movie. I know there's a lot of reasons maybe to not like this movie as a prequel to the alien series. A lot of people don't necessarily like it, but I do really like this movie and <laughs> does it deserve to be on a Christmas list of, of Christmas movies? Well, the reason it's a Christmas movie is because when they arrive at the planet that they've been sent to investigate, the pilot Janik played by, played by uh, Idris Alba sets up a Christmas tree because back home it's Christmas. And so uh, 
this is an interesting movie for a lot of reasons. One is the treatment of religion. It's a big budget sci-fi movie. And a lot of time is spent developing themes of belief and religion and mortality and seeking out your creator. And what else is Christmas about when you take the elements of what Christmas is to us as Christians? Christmas is about belief and, 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 and mortality and seeking your creator and forgiveness from your creator for your sins against your creator. And in the midst of all of that, though, you have this interesting character moment where Idris Alba sets up a Christmas tree. But I feel like it's meant to be something bigger. I feel like it's meant to be something much bigger. The Christmas tree was supposed to go along, I think, with an idea that Ridley Scott had been toying with that they ended up cutting from the movie. But we already have in the movie the ancient astronaut thing going on where you have ancient alien scientists seeding other worlds, including our world, Earth, and they're they're doing things to cause life to get kickstarted, kick, uh, and 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 you know start developing maybe faster or just starting to develop at all. And Ridley Scott, he intended to make the implication that a couple thousand years ago, around, oh, you know, maybe 30 AD, they sent one of their own to come and check up on us. And that alien that they sent to come and check up on us was was killed. And a major world religion was born with his death. And the other thing that was born because of his death was that the ancient alien astronauts, scientists, um, decided they want to kill us now. So basically Prometheus was meant to not just be about aliens causing humans to evolve in that, that prologue sequence. It was also meant to be a space alien Jesus movie. It didn't go in that direction. And instead we get a movie that's um, got some interesting moments for me to cause you to think a little bit uh, if you want. Um, but it doesn't, the, the Jesus element wasn't, wasn't didn't stick around but the christmas element was still there and i'm i I have to say i'm kind of glad that the jesus element the alien jesus who gets crucified and that's why we have christianity i'm glad that wasn't brought to light and and it wasn't a part of the movie but anyway i I do really like the alien franchise and and prometheus is a movie that um i enjoy as a sci-fi movie and i also enjoy as an alien movie I, i think it does fit the the canon of of alien stuff so we are now in the top two, and this is where I'm going to have a two and a two and a half. They're going to go together, but I'll go ahead and start with number two. The number two movie on the list is The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe is the first in C.S. Lewis's fantasy series, and it's the story of four children who find themselves transported to a magical land where there is an evil witch who is in charge, and she is an ice queen and it and she's causing it to always be winter and never be christmas but aslan is on the move and it is a christmas movie this this is not a weak connection my friends this there's no stretching here to make this fit while the white witch rules it is always winter and never christmas but when aslan is on the move with his coming also comes father christmas and the three pevensey children who actually do as they are supposed to do are given special christmas gifts straight from father christmas's sleigh that are going to be used in battle not too long after that this is a a story that you have christmas and easter both represented pretty mightily as far as uh, important themes and ideas, but also as far as for us then causing us to think about those things 
because it's so important to us in, in reality. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it embodies the Gospels. We don't get the literal birth of Aslan, but we do get the metaphorical one as Aslan's coming is heralded with the arrival of Father Christmas. And I'll never forget in third grade, that teacher, Mrs. Jenkins, who I did not like, and she did not like me. It was a very mm, tense relationship between the two of us, but she introduced me to literature and she introduced me to this book and she's the one who brought out these Christ-like connections and taught them to us in, in school. And um, yeah. And so I just, I, I have to thank her for that. There's a lot of other things that I will not thank her for, uh, but that is one thing that I have to thank her for. Toward the end of the story, we're given Aslan's passion, his crucifixion and his resurrection are shown to us. And we also see the forgiveness and redemption of Edmund, the one Pevensey child not present for Father Christmas's presence. But you know what? He did get a great present from Aslan. So it is a Christmas movie and an Easter movie and an action movie all in one. And for all of the Narnia movies, it is the one that I feel like embodies the spirit of the novel the best. And yeah, could it be a better adaptation? Yes, it sure could be, but it's what we ended up getting and it is really good. As a fan of C.S. Lewis, as a fan of Narnia, I am pleased with the results. And here is the 2.5 and that is Shadowlands. Shadowlands is a biographical movie about C.S. Lewis and it covers the time where he met married, and then lost to cancer, his wife, Joy. And it tackles grief and faith and doubt and love. And the reason I would classify it as a Christmas movie is because, again, there's this important plot point that hinges around Christmas. It's the Christmas season when C.S. Lewis gets a message from an American woman who he had corresponded with in the past named Joy Davidman. And she's coming to England for the holidays. She would like to meet him. And by the way, in real life, Joy Davidman also became a friend of Arthur C. Clarke in the midst of all of this and actually uh, spent time with him at some um, literary uh, meetings and stuff. But anyway, when he realizes that she and her son in the movie, it's just one son instead of two, uh, when she, he realizes that she and her son are Christmasing alone, he does what you do at Christmas when someone is without a home, without a place to stay. He invites them to his home and that's appropriate for Christmas time, right? Then she accompanies him to a Christmas party where her brashness makes quite an impression. So Christmas parties are great moments in movies and, and in books to find out things about characters and to see them interact with each other. And it works perfectly here as this reserved Oxford Don and the outspoken former American get to know each other and see what makes the other one tick. This is just the beginning of their relationship and it's the beginning of a romance that will bring both joy and grief to their lives but also leave them both much richer in spirit and fuller in faith than they were before eventually they get married eventually she gets diagnosed with cancer eventually she dies and leaves c.s lewis and her son alone and uh lewis then eventually has to confront both the faith he has held on to safely uh, and now he's, he's not in that place of safety and the emotions he has kept a tight grip on. Uh, he has to confront both those things. And it all happens because of a surprise Christmas visit that led to polite hospital hospitality. So that's, that's Shadowlands. And it's definitely a place of honor in, in the Christmas movie canon that I'm creating here, bringing us to number one, the number one Christmas movie strange Christmas movie, the number one weak connection Christmas movie of all time. Fellowship of the Ring, 
the fellowship of the ring part one of peter jackson's epic the lord of the rings trilogy so peter jackson gets a second movie on here as well and maybe deserves a third one with return of the king and the way that i'm talking about it it's all one long story which is the way tolkien intended it to be anyway but anyway fellowship of the ring it's the opening chapter of peter jackson's epic adaptation of the lord of the rings It's a Christmas movie because Frodo and the rest of the fellowship leave Rivendale on December 25th. The date that Frodo and his company of the ring leave Rivendale is found in an appendix at the end of the Lord of the Rings. So don't worry if you're wondering, first of all, A, you maybe missed something or B, I'm crazy. You didn't miss anything. It's not mentioned in the movie. And if you don't read the appendixes, it's not mentioned in in the book. But if you didn't miss anything. And I'm not crazy, okay? (laughs) But that date is something that is important. Tolkien went out of his way to include that date, that the day that Frodo and his friends chose to step out to destroy the most significant evil the world has ever known was December 25th. For Tolkien, this has significance because everything Tolkien wrote was to have significance for the plot or the themes that he was building on. What gives this even more significance So it's not just here's the beginning of a journey that's going to destroy the most evil thing in the world in the same way that Jesus's birth was in a lot of ways, the beginning of a journey that's going to destroy the greatest evil the world's ever known. Sin. The ring. (laughs) What gives it more significance is that in the return of the king, when the ring is destroyed, the date of Sauron's defeat and the destruction of that evil force is March 25th. Now, the significance of March 25th is something I was not aware of until I did some digging into what's going on with the dates here, Tolkien. And I found out that is the date of the first Good Friday. The traditional date celebrating the birth of Christ, December 25th, is the date Tolkien used for the day the course of events leading to the destruction of the ring began. And the date of Christ's death marks the destruction of that ring and the beginning of a new era. This is no accident. Tolkien knew the story he was telling, and he knew the traditions he was pulling from, and he knew the themes he wanted to develop. And to Tolkien, Christmas marked the beginning of the end of an era, and Good Friday marked the actual end of an era. With Christmas, the one who would bring an end to the destructive reign of sin was born, and with Good Friday and Christ's death, the sting of death, sin, was destroyed. And Tolkien has gone on record as not liking allegory, but with the themes of the Lord of the Rings and the dates he details in the appendixes, he proves that he had no problem with illusion, at least, and thematic metaphor, okay? And that's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is all about God becoming man and choosing to rescue us from our sin and choosing to rescue the world from the evil around us. And In so many of these movies, you have those weak connections where we're seeing evil and it's juxtaposed against peace. It's juxtaposed against what we desire. We desire peace on earth. We desire peace in ourselves. We desire peace in our families. And Christmas is a time to celebrate peace. And Christmas is a time to reminisce. And Christmas is a time to um, be reconciled. And and it's all those things, but it's all those things because of what it meant in the first place. And that is that Christ has come, child is born, 
but it's all pointing forward to Easter. And that's what Tolkien was doing with Fellowship of the Ring and Return of the King and, of course, Two Towers in between there. So that is my mega list. And it is 25 movies that you may not have thought of as Christmas movies, but they definitely are. Kind of. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed it. I, I do encourage you to go back to our website, strangersandaliens.com. You can find a bunch of other episodes. You can also listen to our audio podcast wherever you find podcasts. And there's plenty of weak connection videos here on YouTube as well. Please also don't forget to look for a time for everything. This is a book of 28 short stories about time that are science fiction, fantasy, and inspired by. Ecclesiastes 3, also my book Ghosts of the Future, both available on Amazon both, I just if you do read it I hope you like it, and if you do like it I hope you review it, and if you do review it um, let me know, but anyway all that said, thank you so much for spending time with me, thank you so much for listening and until next time I hope you have a great Christmas holidays and Godspeed You've been listening to the Strangers and Aliens podcast, hosted by Ben Avery, Evan David, Steve McDonald, and Dr. Jason Neal. Our music was composed and mixed by Tim Leffel. We'd love for you to join the conversation by going to our website at strangersandaliens.com, where you'll find show notes, articles, reviews, and more. You can also email us directly at podcast at strangersandaliens.com. Or you can join our social media conversations by following us on Twitter, where we are at Strange and Alien or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangersandaliens. Or leave us a voicemail by calling the Strangers and Aliens hotline. That number is 1-804-37-ALIEN. And once again, thanks for listening.